Oh, that's so fun, what Drake was just talking about of like, so my guess is some of you went to the, to the retreat or went over to the Combined Salt last week and were like, man, this, this salt company is big, which is hilarious because we were the little baby salt company like two years ago. And so I see this and I'm like, dang, this thing's, this, like just give a couple years, it's gonna blow up, okay? That's, that's all I got, I'm excited. So my name's Jordan. Um, I uh, started following Jesus, uh, well, kind of learned what it meant to follow Jesus through Salt Company in college. That's how I ended up here. Um, And maybe like some of you, I was in, I'm like, I dig this thing, it's cool, but I also felt like it was super weird. People raising their hands, people sitting in small groups, like talking about some of the worst stuff they've done. I was freaked out by it, but God changed my life through it. Um, And so that's how I ended up jumping on staff. Drake and I go way back. Drake and I went through college together and uh, hung out a ton. We actually took a road trip up here to the Twin Cities one year to go to a show at First Ave downtown. We just drove up for the night, went to the show, drove back. Drake will tell you about it. It was a blast, but we go way back. So this is like, this is just fun. I don't know. I know you don't have the context for that, but I'm like, I'm feeling some stuff. Like, oh my gosh, Drake's up there and we were just students and now we're doing this. Anyway, all right, I'm pumped to be here. Uh, Yeah, so I've been leading Salt Company for a couple years up here. I'm one of the pastors at the church out in Salt City. Um, yeah, pumped to, to talk to you guys a little bit tonight. So here's the deal. We're in 1 Corinthians. Now, we're in 1 Corinthians 6, and you might be thinking, weren't we just in 1 Corinthians 1? Yes. So we're not working our way straight through this thing. We're hitting kind of the high points of both, both 1 and 2 Corinthians. And 1 Corinthians 6 is sort of a summary of a main chunk of the idea of 1 Corinthians. So that's why we're hitting 1 Corinthians 6 tonight. And, and right there, if you're following along your Bible, that'd be awesome. If you jump down to verse 12, that is what I think is kind of the, the focal point of what this chapter is about. And, and so Paul in this is quoting this little catchphrase that the Corinthians were saying, all right? So this is what verse 12 says, is all things are lawful for me. So this was a little Corinthian catchphrase that Paul is gonna respond to. All things are lawful for me. So here's, here's essentially what this means, is like, hey, don't tell me how to live, right? Like, like I'm free to, how, to live however I want, and so, so don't try and put kind of your rules on me, which... I don't know, does that sound familiar? Sounds a little bit like us, sounds a little bit like our culture. How, how do you feel when somebody just says the phrase, hey, you should blank, fill in the blank? Not typically great, right? Okay, your parents, your parents telling you how to live. How do you feel about that? You, uh, any of you got like the, the helicopter mom? Don't raise your hand, okay? But I, I talk to way too many moms in this job I, uh, because they're just helicopter moms that call me and are like trying to check up on how you guys are doing and weird stuff like that. Like parents that are a little overbearing, how do you feel when they get up in your life and tell you how to live? Like you should spend your money like this. This is your major. This is what you should do with your life. My guess is most of you aren't like, oh, why thank you for your wisdom, right? Like you're probably like, all right, this is my life. Relax. Why? Because we love our freedom. We, we think that we know how to live and we know the best way for us to live. And in part of loving freedom, like that's a normal human thing and that's in particular an American thing, right? Like in the summer on the 4th of July, the bro tanks come out with the American flags, the hicks in their trucks, sc- trucks screaming America, you know, like we love our freedom. It's like nobody's taking our freedom from us, right? But what if I told you that, you are not actually free. And in fact, not only are you not free, a lot of you, but you're actually a slave. 
And that the reason for that is not because somebody else is taking your freedom from you and you gotta fight that off, but actually because you're creating that slavery through the way that you're living. That, that you're the one enslaving yourself because you've mistaken slavery for freedom and freedom for slavery. So that's actually what 1 Corinthians 6 is about. And here's one of the big ideas from 1 Corinthians 6 is that freedom isn't living however you want when what you want is killing you. Freedom is learning how to live for what's good. Freedom isn't living however you want. Freedom is learning to live for what's good. So I've got uh, a son. He's just over 10 months old. His name's Graham, and he's just old enough to start to not listen to me, right? So the other day, he is, I look down, and he's got my computer cord, and he's just chewing on it. And so I said no, which I felt like was a fairly reasonable request, right? So Graham looks up at me and just takes the cord and crawls off the opposite direction. And as he's crawling, he gets, like, the cord gets stretched out and it like smokes him and he flops out on the ground. And then he just looks at me mad and starts screaming. Here's the deal. He doesn't actually know what's good for him. And he hates it when I tell him no, right? Like, hey, Graham. Dude, don't uh, pick up the dirt from that plant and rub it all over your face and eat it, right? Like, I'm, I'm trying to keep him from that. And what does he do? He immediately responds to me by screaming at me. Why? Because he doesn't have the perspective to know that the reason why I'm telling him that is for his good. I actually want to benefit his life, not hurt his life. But from his perspective, I'm just a fun hater, right? That's what a lot of us are like with God. So here's the deal. God, if, if you're going to take Christianity seriously... Okay, I don't mean like just kind of you grew up around Christianity or you're pseudo-Christian. I mean, if you actually want to believe this thing, if you think that it matters for your life, if you believe that it's true, you're going to have to figure out that Christianity has something to say about the way that you live and it will often conflict with the way that you would naturally want to live. And we're just like a kid that when God tells us no for our good, when he gives us some restrictive restrictions for our benefit, we get mad at him because we think that he's a fun hater, but we don't realize that he's trying to give us life, not death. He's trying to set us free, not restrict us. And so I want to I talk about what true freedom looks like if we're willing to listen to what Jesus has to say about how we should live our lives. So 1 Corinthians 6 has kind of a couple categories of this freedom. So the first one is the pathway to freedom in relationships. And then the second one is the pathway to freedom in sexuality. So let me look at this first one, pathway to freedom in relationships. So, so here's what's going on in Corinth. To give you a little context so this makes sense, is the Corinthians are just fighting with each other like crazy. They're just having these arguments. We don't know exactly what's going on, but they're getting so bad that people in a church together are suing each other, which isn't actually a very great idea They've got all of this conflict going on and, and go back to what we just talked about. They're fighting for their rights and, and they think that they've been wronged by this other person and so they're gonna fight for their rights even if it means suing another Christian in court and putting up a bad witness for Jesus in public. But Paul is gonna give them some advice on maybe a different perspective on what the good life is. So, so look at verse seven, 1 Corinthians 6, verse seven. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Okay, do you see what he's saying here? 
it's better for you to sacrificially love someone else than to engage in hateful conflict. Right? He's saying it's actually a better life. Here, here's the principle, is living a life of love, even when it costs you something, is always better than living a life of selfishness and conflict. That's not very intuitive for us, but he's saying that's a, a better life. And here's why this is freeing, is because nobody actually wants to be a hypocrite. Okay, so some of you have heard this lobbed against Christianity, right? Oh, Christians, they're just hypocrites. They don't actually follow through on what they say. My guess is none of you in this room are like, oh yeah, that's me, I'm a hypocrite, huh, hey. Like, you don't love that. You don't wanna be characterized as that, or maybe some of you have been burned by hypocrisy in the church. Like, maybe you've gone away from the church thing for a while and you're just starting to come back because of some of the hypocrisy that you've seen. So nobody wants to be a hypocrite, but isn't it so easy to be one? Like, when Jesus talks about loving other people, and he talks about turning the other cheek and praying for those who persecute you and loving your enemies. And we're all like, yay, Jesus, that's awesome. We love that. That's super culturally fashionable right now. Go, Jesus, that's awesome. But then you turn around and you gossip about people in this room. Or you hold on to bitterness because of a conflict that happened maybe years ago and that bitterness is tearing you apart in your soul and you're tearing down the image of that person in your mind and maybe in the minds of other people as you gossip about them. There's a discrepancy between what you say you believe and how you actually live. Or maybe you get ticked off about the injustice in the world, right? Like, like a political person says something that makes you mad and you just rant about it on social media to your friends. Which, by the way, calling out injustice is a good thing. Okay, I'm not hating on that. Let's be clear on that. But what if we actually did something instead of just talking about it? What if instead of getting mad and posting, what if we actually loved real people? What if we, instead of ranting about the justice that should come, what if we did something to bring that justice here? And so we're actually trying to figure that out with Salt, Salt Company. We've got um, a, a school that might have some, some kids that need rides home after school, and we're trying to figure out if we can make that happen. We're trying to make a connection with a homeless shelter so that we can serve some meals and, and do whatever else would be helpful for them because we want to actually do something with our faith, not just talk about it. We don't want to just point out the problems. We want to be a part of the solution. So, so isn't that the type of life that you want to live? Don't you want to be the type of person who isn't a hypocrite but actually backs up what you say you believe? Freedom in relationships is being the type of person who loves other people the way that you say that we should love other people. All right, so that's the first form of freedom. Sacrificial love of other people is actually more beneficial for us. All right, let's talk about the next category, sexual freedom. All right, let's acknowledge something. This is my first time talking to you guys, and we're about to talk about sex like for the rest of the sermon, okay? That wasn't, I, I didn't like plan that, okay? It's just, it's what 1 Corinthians 6 is about. I didn't roll out of bed like, oh my gosh, I wanna talk to you guys about sex. Okay, so I know you don't know me, but can we just, right, let's acknowledge it and move on, okay? We're, we're gonna do this thing because the Bible talks about it. So that's why we're talking about it and because it's important. All right, so let's, let's talk about sex. Uh, <laughs> okay, this weird thing happens when I talk to college students about their sexuality is you guys will say something along the lines of this. Like, hey, 
I just don't think it's wrong to have sex before marriage, which, by the way, let, let me back up. That, that is actually what the Bible says. Okay, that's, that's a clear message throughout all of Scripture. It's not debatable. It's, it's all over the place that, that sex is good, but only within its context of marriage. That's the appropriate context for sex. And so this is what I'll hear. Hey, I just don't see why that's wrong. That seems arbitrary to me. I just don't think that having sex before marriage is wrong, which is an odd statement because it assumes that we're just having a conversation about opinions. Right, like we're just talking about what restaurant is best around here. Like, this is not a conversation about opinions. Like, I personally, Jordan Adams, I am not interested in how much sex you do or do not have. Like, I didn't, I didn't get together with the other married couples and be like, hey, the sex thing, we're gonna hold on to this thing for ourselves. We're gonna keep those single people out. Like, I don't care about your sex life, to be frank, okay? So why are we talking about this if it's not just an opinion? It's because God cares about it. And he's given us descriptions about what the good life is. And so when you, when you disagree with the idea of biblical sexuality or what God has to say about sexuality, your disagreement isn't with me or with a Christian or the church. Your disagreement is with God. And he invented sex, by the way, and morality for that matter. So he's like a decent authority on the topic. So, so this is... This is what I'm asking you. Can we just have a little bit of self-awareness and realize that we maybe are not the experts in this situation? Like if you're not the expert in something, you don't have a great place to talk to the expert about what they should and shouldn't be doing. I do not give Beyonce dance lessons. There's a good reason for that. Like let's say I can go back to 2008. Beyonce is about to release single ladies, right? And I roll into that dance studio and she's doing her gyrating thing. She's doing the hand thing, you know? And I just am like, Beyonce, this is just weird. I think you should do like a Michael Jackson spin in like jazz hands. No, like it's, it's not a good plan. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for that hand, I appreciate it. Like I'm not rolling up to Bill Gates and telling him how to build computers because I'm not the expert in the situation. This is what I'm saying is God is actually the expert on sex and morality and it's not an opinion, it's just a fact. Two plus two is four. The best place for sex is within the context of marriage. That's just true about the universe. So that's why God says this in verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Okay, so you see there that this is, um, it's not sort of categorically worse than any other sin, but it is unique in that when you're struggling in this area, you're sinning not just against another person, but you're sinning against yourself. And that's why there's so much shame and hurt and guilt associated with it. It's why the Bible talks about it so much. It's because it's a big deal and it wants to give you some, some life in this area. And so this is what it's saying. It's what God is saying. Run from sexual immorality. Run from it. Like, if, if someone is breaking into your house and you have that information and you know they mean to do you harm, and you've got, let's say you've got six doors in your house. I don't know why you have that many doors, but you've got six doors in your house. You're not gonna check the locks on five and then remember that you didn't check the lock on the six and be like, um, you know, maybe it's fine. It's probably locked. You're gonna check that door because the stakes are really high. You're gonna make dang sure that that house is locked up. This is what this is saying is don't just mess around with this stuff. Get out, run, make sure every door is locked. Make sure that this stuff can't come into your life. Now, in order to be able to run from sexual immorality, you've gotta know what it is. So let me 
give you Jesus's definition of sexual immorality. Matthew 5, 27 through 28. You don't, you don't gotta flip there. I think we'll have it on the screens. I'll also read it to you. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Okay, do you see what he's doing there? He's giving you like the rule, right? The, the classic Christian rule, like don't, don't commit adultery, don't cheat on your spouse. But then Jesus takes that a step further and he's like, hey, just sort of conforming your actions, that's amateur hour morality. I not only see your actions, but I see your mind, I see your motivations, I see your heart, and I care about the whole thing. And I want you to be the type of person that is pure holistically. I, I want everything about you to be in step with the way that I created you to be. And so this, this way to honor God with your life isn't only what you do with your body. It is for sure what you do with your body, but it's also what you do with your mind, with your, with your motivations, with your intentions, with your heart, because Jesus sees the whole thing. And so he raises the bar on what he's asking from us, but also realize that he's giving you that high bar because it's the best life you possibly could live. So I'm gonna get specific, okay? Because I think that it actually is important to define what this is. Because I, I've heard a lot of people that essentially toe the line right up to like, just before having sex and are like, hey, I'm good. I'm living the Christian life. And I think it's just a misunderstanding of what Jesus actually taught. All right, so it's gonna get real for a minute. I'm not doing it to be weird. I just, I think it's important. So let's talk about this. Okay, looking at a person and thinking about having sex with them, that is sexual immorality. Lustful thoughts that you have, sexual immorality. Dating a guy simply because of what he looks like. Sexual immorality, because you're, you're not treating him or vice versa her as an image bearer of God worthy of respect. You're treating them as an object, as a trophy to make you look better. That's not the way God designed you to live. He cares too much about you. He cares too much about that person. Feeling up your girlfriend or boyfriend. Sexual immorality. Looking at porn. Masturbating. Sexual immorality. Oral sex, okay? I, the reason I said that in particular is because someone once talked to me about this. I didn't, I, they came up to me and they were like, they essentially explained that they were having oral sex but said they're not having sex. Like, don't worry, we're not actually having sex, we're just having oral sex. And I'm like, come on guys. Literally sex is in the name of that thing. Like you clearly are, okay? That is sexual immorality. It's what God is telling you to run from. Now question, Why? Why does he care about that stuff? Why does he get so specific? It's not just because God's a fun hater and he's giving you some arbitrary rules because he feels like it. Look, the reason why sex is attractive, why it's awesome and, and it's great to be a part of in the appropriate context is because God made it. He designed it specifically to be pleasurable. It didn't have to be pleasurable. God specifically designed it for that. God, hear me on this, God is pro-sex. Okay, he is... He is pro-pleasure. He designed it that way. When, if, if you get married, God wants your sex life to be awesome. He's a fan of that, okay? It's just that marriage is the only context where sex is truly pleasurable. Everywhere else it causes pain. 
Okay, what I don't mean by that is sex isn't fun anywhere else, but I just mean long-term, marriage is the only context where sex is pleasurable everywhere else it causes pain. I'll explain that in a second, but let me, let me throw out some pushbacks that I've heard on this idea of Christian morality surrounding sex. So I, I hear a couple things in culture and from talking to people. Uh, I hear both of these things, that sex is natural and that sex is normal. And, and, and so let me unpack that. The first one, that sex is natural, and kind of in parentheses, what they mean by that is because it's natural, you can't put any boundaries on it. In fact, it's wrong to put boundaries on it. So, so this idea is because I want to have sex, because it comes natural to me, or a certain form of sexuality comes natural to me, that I should be able to express it because it's a normal, natural thing. I should be able to do whatever I want. But here's the deal. There's plenty of stuff that comes natural to you or that comes natural to me. This is just a really bad idea. I get the late night munchies after Salt Company every week and I wanna eat everything in my house. I just go home, I wanna eat the Oreos, I wanna eat the chips, I wanna bust out like the soups and like the real food in the fridge. I wanna eat everything in my house, but I don't because it's a bad idea and I would get really fat, okay? Like, it's just not a good plan. I want to drive 110 miles an hour every time I drive a car. I just like driving cars fast and I wanna do it every time, but I don't because it could kill me. Like I, people drive me nuts in traffic and my immediate response is not very Christian. They cut me off and I wanna run them off the road, but I don't because it's a bad idea. Okay, here's the deal. If you wanna wreck your body, ruin your life and your relationships, do whatever comes natural to you. But if, if, if you want to live a good life, if you want to live a better life than the one you're living, do what's good. All right, second, sex is normal. It's just, you know, everybody's having sex. It's, it's a normal human thing. And so kind of in parentheses, the argument there is, therefore, sex is not that big of a deal. Christians make too big of a deal out of this thing. Like, why, why are we causing all the fuss? It's not that big of a deal. Okay, look at verse 13. This, again, is a quote from the Corinthians. This is a Corinthian catchphrase that Paul is responding to in his letter. So this is what this church was saying. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food. Okay, let me explain that. It's using that as an analogy. So this is essentially what they're saying. Hey, when I'm hungry, I eat food. It's just the normal, natural thing. When I want to have sex, I have sex. It's the normal, natural thing. Sex is just sex. But listen to what Paul says back to that. Verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make the members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Okay. This is what he's arguing for is that sex isn't just sex, but it's actually an incredibly powerful gift from God. So at the end of that sentence there where he says, the two will become one flesh. That's a quote from Genesis about what happens in marriage and when you consummate the marriage with sex is that there's this mystical thing that God designed in our souls where two people become one. So I know that's sometimes hard to see, but even from a physical perspective, like you could see that a little bit in my wife and I's life. Like if you went to our house and said, hey, all right, put all of Jordan's stuff here, put all of Jesme's stuff here, we wouldn't be able to do it because it's just our stuff. If you said put Jordan's money here, Jesme's money, we wouldn't be able to do it because it's just our bank account. We have this, this life together. 
When, when she's gone for a couple, I feel it. There's something going on inside of me that, that my soul is attached to her soul in this sort of specific and unique way. There's this spiritual and mystical reality to what happens in marriage and what happens in sex. Or another way to think about it is sex is like welding two souls together. Okay, so, so picture what welding is, is you take two pieces of metal, you essentially melt it, you, you put a flame to it, you melt the metal, and then the metal sort of not only interlocks, but it, it becomes inseparable. Where before you had two things and now you had one, they, they're intermixed together. Sex makes two souls into one. That's what it does. It welds two souls together. So that's why if you've ever gone through a breakup after you've had sex with someone or you've towed the line with someone, that's why, part of the reason why it's so brutal. That's why in the process you feel hollow. It's why you, like, you, you feel like something's missing, like some of your, your limbs are gone. It's because your souls were bound together and they're getting ripped apart. That's the reality of what's happening. So that is the explanation for why God is saying to keep it in that context is because it's unbelievably powerful and marriage is the only context that can really handle that. But listen to what he says next. This, is, this blows my mind. This is crazy. Verse 17. So this is right after he gives that explanation about what sex is. Verse 17, he says, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Okay, think about that. Really, I'm, I'm gonna give you a second. Think about that. If you're in Christ, you're one spirit with Jesus. What does that even mean? Like, oh, my head blew up. Like, this, this is what he's saying. He's, he's saying the analogy of sex in marriage, where two souls become one. He's saying that is an illustration of what it's like to know God. That when you trust Jesus Christ, you, your soul and his soul get intermixed. They get welded together that in some senses you become indistinguishable from Jesus Christ. Like you are him and he is you and nothing can separate the two of you. And when God sees you, he, he sees Jesus because in some senses you are Jesus. Your spirit and his spirit in a lot of ways are one in the same. And so here's what that means is you are unbelievably valuable because you are Christ if you're in him. Look at verse 19, the end of verse 19. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. You were purchased at a price. Now listen, when you buy something expensive, why is it worth it to you? Why, 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 do you, why are you willing to pay a bunch of money for that expensive thing? And after you give up all of that money, why are you not sad? Why are you happy not sad? It's because that thing you bought was worth it to you. It was worth more to you than the money that you had to give up to get it. You were unbelievably expensive to Jesus. It cost him his life. It cost him his relationship with his father. It cost him heaven. It cost him everything. This was the price for you. Everything that the son of God had, he gave up for you. Why? Because you're worth it. Because you're that valuable to him. Because 
You were significant enough and valuable enough in his sight that he wasn't thinking about everything that he gave up. He was just thinking about relationship with you. That's what you meant to him. And I feel like sometimes the way that, that church can talk about sin and sex is, is a little bit demeaning. This seems to be the strategy. It's like, oh, sex is gross and you're gross if you want it. But that's, this is the exact opposite thing. This is what Jesus is saying is no, you are unbelievably valuable. You're created in the image of God. You are Christ. You have everything that Jesus has. You're, the mo- you're one of the most valuable things in the universe. Like when God is showing someone around the universe and he, sh- he goes to show them his favorite part, he walks up to you and he points at you and he says, man, I love this one. I, this is my favorite part of my creation. You're unbelievably valuable. And so because you're valuable, why in the world would you want to degrade your body? Because you're valuable, because Jesus did all of that for you, why in the world would you want to cheat on Christ with sexual sin? Right? If you're married to Christ, if you're united with Christ, when you engage in sexual sin, you're cheating on him. Why would you want to distance yourself from that ridiculous relationship that he's given you access to? Don't, don't throw your body around like it doesn't matter. Your body is unbelievably valuable. It's eternal. Jesus values you, and so value yourself the way that Jesus values you. Okay, I want to, I want to zoom out to, kind of, to finish out. There's something really amazing on the whole going on in our culture called the Me Too movement. Okay, now don't, don't get political on me. I don't care about, I don't, just don't care. Okay, the, but what's going on in the Me Too movement is it's calling out the result of human beings chasing whatever they wanted to chase. The result of human beings being quote unquote free instead of pursuing Christ is everything wrong with this world. And the Me Too movement is calling that stuff out. And here's the deal. There might be some of you in the room that unfortunately could post Me Too. And and real quick, here's what I want you to know. It wasn't your fault. You You are not used goods You are not gross. That person does not get to define you. Jesus' love and delight in you is stronger than that person's hate and their evil. You can be made new in Christ. That person did not take anything from you that Jesus can't give back to you. And here's also what I want you to know is if you need help, our staff is willing to help. Now, I know that might be incredibly hard to talk about. No one's forcing you to talk. But if you would like to talk, our staff is willing to help. And if you want, we'd be happy to call the police on any person that did anything to you. And I would be happy personally to confront that person if it's someone here or someone that you know to help you feel safe and secure. But here's the thing. All those things that the Me Too movement is calling for, justice, equality, accountability, love, respect, evil to be exposed for what it is. Does that sound familiar? If you're a Christian, it should. What is that? That's the kingdom of Jesus. That's the life that he designed for you to live. That's why he said the stuff that he said is because that's the type of world that he's creating through us. That's the the type of person that he wants to make you into. So, So I want you to imagine for a second, what would the world be like if everyone lived out the principles of Jesus? 
The principles that we just talked about, about love in relationships and true sexual freedom through self-control. Like one of the best ways to test out if an idea is moral is if you just thought about what would the world be like if every single person did that thing. That's a great way to test morality. So let's test out Jesus's ideas. If every single person on this planet listened to what Jesus said and lived by it, here's what would happen. Every single person on the planet would feel loved and respected. Every single person would go out of their way to lift up the person next to them. Every single person would forfeit their own rights to support and lift up another person, which means that every person would be lifted up, right? Because as you're giving up your rights to pick somebody else up, somebody else is giving up their rights to pick you up. Sexual violence and harassment would immediately stop. You would never again be afraid to walk home alone at night. You would never again be disrespected at work. Overnight, prostitution rings and sexual slavery would end. The porn industry would crumble for lack of customers. People would have better sex, actually, because they would have sex inside of a committed marital relationship, which there's actually studies that prove that, that the best the best sex people are having is like older married couples. That's a real thing. People would have great sex. You would, you would never go through a breakup where you felt like you were being ripped apart in your soul. You would never again know what it's like to use someone or be used by someone. That sounds like a pretty awesome world. That sounds like the type of world I want to live in. It sounds like the type of world that people are calling for that we need and that nobody knows how to get. What if we had the solution? What if we could be those type of people? What if we could create that type of world? Verse nine and 10 gives this list of everything that sucks in the world, everything that that is anti-Jesus. You can read that list on your own. And and by the way, that list isn't saying that if you've done any of those things, you've been disqualified from the kingdom of God because the Corinthians had done all of those things. It's just a list of the things that are anti-kingdom of Jesus and then an invitation into the kingdom of Jesus. Listen to verse 11. It, It gets off this list of everything wrong with the world and it says, and such were some of you. But listen, past tense, you were washed, you were sanctified, You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Some of you were the people who hit the bars and slept around. Some of you have a list of names that you don't remember. Some of you are people that have messed around with your boyfriend or girlfriend. Some of you are porn addicts. Some of you carry the shame of some of the stuff that you did in high school like I do. Some of you have a list of regrets in your life and a list of people that you've hurt. Listen, that's who you were. If you trust Jesus, it's not who you are. You are new. Jesus sanctified you, past tense. Here's what sanctified means. He made you holy. He set you apart as pure. You are pure now if you're in him. He washed you. He made you clean. So live like you're clean. Let me pray. Jesus, we ask you for that. Help us to live this way. It's so hard to believe this. I forget this all the time, that your ways are better than my ways. 
um, that living for you is better than living for myself, that sin isn't actually fun, it just sucks, but remind us of that, God. And we pray that your kingdom come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. That, that vision of what it would be like if we all lived out the good life that you've described for us, would that be true in us? God, we can't control everything that happens in the world, but you can do something in here. You can do something with these people. This can be a community that's everything that everybody else is calling for and wants, and we can invite people into that. And so make us new, God. Help us to live new lives. Not just talk about it, but actually go do it. Actually live differently. God, thank you for sanctifying us. Thank you for washing us. Thank you for making us new. I got to pray specifically for the, the, the person in this room that feels guilt and feels shame and feels regret. Help them to know your absolute love and delight in them. Help them to have confidence in how much you love them. Help them to know right now that they're clean, that if they trust you, none of their sins are held against them. They've been made new in you, Jesus. You redeem, you renew, you wash us clean. It's not held against us. We praise you for that, God. And so now we wanna, we wanna sing together because you're, you're worth it. It's all we can do to respond to love like the love you've given us. And so help us to sing to you the way that you, you deserve to be worshiped. We love you, amen.